children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And if you would open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 1, this is the last week that we're going to be in Matthew 1. Um, when you're preaching through the entire book of Matthew, you know, and you're going to be passing chapter 1 by, you want to make sure that you say everything that there is to be said, because uh, we will not come this way again for a long time. So, uh, before I read, I just want to say um, that uh, it is a blessing to read and to share the Word of God. My mentor, Pastor Mike would say often that any man should tremble to presume to speak for God. Um, And yet that's exactly what God commands. Um, What a blessing to read and to dig into a passage and to ponder its meaning and to be taught and to be humbled by it and then to be able to share. So I want to thank you for the opportunity. Let's read Matthew chapter 1 starting in verse 18. and, uh, hey guys, I am not on my, when I flip the switch, if, it, yeah, anyway. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, ooh, there I am. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It might be a little too loud, just turn it down a little bit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to hear your word, to hear you speak to us, and we thank you that you do that in your son. And we thank you that you do that in your word and that we can hear your word and be confident that the words that you are speaking are yours. We thank you that your spirit fills your word with power, power to raise the dead, to create the universe, to shape the heart and the mind. We pray that you would shape our hearts and transform our minds today. We pray that as we consider the prophecies of scripture, that we would see them as strong evidence of the historicity of the gospel, of the the truth that you have been doing this work since the dawn of humanity's history, and that we can be confident that your son is the one whom we are looking for to save us. 
the 2016 presidential election may bring joy to one political party or another. It may bring prosperity or poverty to this country. It may see a change of whether we are at war with one country or another, but it will not ultimately change the world because the president is not the one we're looking for. Your son is the one that we all ought to be looking for. And so we pray that as we consider this word and we consider the implications of it, that our understanding would be enlightened and our hearts and minds would be changed. We pray that you speak to us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, There is uh, a kind of delight that comes from understanding, isn't there? Uh, When you have been frustrated, look at her coming with water at the precise Um, there's a delight that comes from understanding. Uh, there are the, the little kinds of, I gotta walk all the way back here. Um, there's the little kinds of understandings where you, you realize something and you can kind of laugh at yourself and, and delight. The other night I was leaving small group and uh, I had to get home. Nancy was out of town. And so I was zipping, you know, trying to get out the door. And I'm like walking around the, the house where we have small group looking for my keys. And I've got my Bible and my notes and my phone in my hand. And as I turned, like I've, I've looked everywhere that they could possibly be. I heard them jingling. They were in my hand, concealed by everything, and it was like, you know, duh, kind of smile at that moment. Okay, okay, that's a little kind of understanding, right? Big understanding, when, you, when, a, when a piece of the universe kind of fits together, or a piece of your personal universe where, where when you understand it, it actually changes your behavior, that's a little different. Um, for the first, like, two or three years that Nancy and I were married, I would, I would say things to her like, um, I did all the laundry, right? And she would say, you haven't done the laundry unless you've put it away, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't understand. Look, behold, a dining room table full of clean, folded laundry. And she would say, the laundry's not done until it's put away. And so I'm like, I'm pondering this deep mystery of the universe and of my wife. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And she's like, the part I like least is putting it away. (laughs) Ah, right. And that changes things. Now you get the laundry put away, happy wife, happy life, right? You know, um, so, so these kinds of things, when we learn them, they, they, they change our perspective. And they change our, our relationship to the, what's, what's surrounding us. Um, Matthew, as he is describing the birth of Jesus, as he's considering the evidence that he's putting before the readers of his gospel, has stumbled upon a truth, or he has discovered a truth, or seen a truth fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. And this is the the understanding that ought to inform the reader of this gospel. That something incredible has taken place in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So everything from verse 18 
to verse 21 is to fulfill God's words spoken by a prophet. Which prophet? Isaiah. But he doesn't say the prophet Isaiah, I believe, because he's not pointing out that Isaiah is an important prophet or chief among the prophets or the longest prophet. He's just a prophet and the Lord spoke by him. So we're supposed to see the word of the Lord here. That God said, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew helpfully says, which means God with us. So what we're going to do this morning is, is take a quick study of this prophecy, the prophecy of Emmanuel, which I believe will teach us what it means that God is with us so that we can live in the good of that prophecy. So that, so that knowing what it means that God is with us, we can say, yes, we're going to delight and live in this truth because we understand and now we see it. Um, Spurgeon points out that, that the passage contains the word which means. His translation, the King James, said being interpreted means God with us. Um, you have probably noticed if you travel at all, right, that... Um, it, is, it is not hard to find the bathroom, right? If you've traveled like in airports. Uh, because what has happened is, is this, this concept of humans need to find the restroom has been translated into a symbol, right? In Zambia, if they wanted to hide the bathroom from the Muzungus who come on their tourist trip, that means white guy, um, I wanted to get a shirt and wear it over there three times now. I've forgotten. I just wanted to say Mzungu on it, um, and I've, I've forgotten each time. If they, if they wanted to hide the bathroom, they would label it Chimbuzi, because I have no idea what that means, right? But because they want people to find the restroom, what they do is they draw the universal man symbol. You know what he looks like. Or the universal woman symbol, right? She has no hair, just like the man, but she's kind of got a dress thing on. This, like, triangular. What do you... There's... Yeah, a triangle. Yeah, she's wearing a triangle. The latest in universal fashion for all humanity. Um, if Matthew wanted to hide this truth and confine it just to the Jewish readers, he would have said, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And people would have said, What does that mean. But what he says is it means God with us. It is translated to mean God with us, which means that Matthew wants all people to know this truth. He wants it, he wants it known that Emmanuel means God with us, because this is one of the most important things that we could know. It determines our eternal destiny and determines the way that we live our lives. So let's take a look at the, the passage that this comes from. <coughs> if you want to flip there, uh, flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. If you're using your electronic device, you know, move your thumb so that you, you find Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, you may know that there is some controversy surrounding this passage. What Bible passage doesn't have some controversy? Because there are people who don't believe the Bible, people who do believe the Bible, and those who don't say that there are contradictions and inconsistencies and things like that. There's a, there's a, a controversy about the word virgin in the passage, Isaiah 714. 
whether or not that means unmarried young woman, woman who's never been with a man. They argue over the Hebrew word Bethula and the word Alma. Um, and then they, they point out that the word Parthenos in Greek means virgin. Um, but let me just say this as you drop into that passage, Isaiah chapter 7. Our belief in the virgin conception of Jesus does not come from Isaiah chapter 7 comes from the fact that it's written right there in Matthew chapter 1. And so no matter what some scholar says this Hebrew word means or that Hebrew word means, Matthew is clearly teaching that Jesus was born of a virgin in Matthew 1, 20 and 25. The passage speaks of a sign that a sign would be given to King Ahaz. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but I want to give you some, some, some thoughts to keep, you know, some, some ideas to keep with you as we move through the passage. Um, the sign is that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. This is a sign given in the lifetime of Isaiah to a king named Ahaz. Now, what is the sign? What does the sign mean? This is a lot of the controversy over what this passage means. The sign needs to mean something. Now, I want to point out, signs in the Bible can be of two kinds. They can be present persuaders, right? They can be a, something which happens in the present to persuade, something, uh, persuade somebody of something, or they can be future confirmations, it will be a sign, right, to you that, 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 ah, you know, I have arrived at this place, and this is the situation I find myself in, and now we know the truth of what we were told back in that day. Okay, Exodus 4.8, God tells Moses, if they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, what's the first sign that God gave Moses? Throw the stick on the ground, turns into a snake, right? Pick the snake back up, turns back into a stick, stick your hand into your clothing and pull it out and it'll be diseased and white and flaky and leprous, you know, stick it back in and it turns back into a normal hand. Those are two signs. The, the third sign is, is pour some blood on the ground, I mean, pour some water from the river Nile on the ground and it'll turn into blood. That's the sign. What are they there for? What is their function? To persuade the people who are listening to Moses that God sent him. But there's another sign. And this is what you could call a future confirmation, Exodus 3.12. This is what God says. I will be with you and this will be the sign for you that I've sent you, Moses. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, you're going to go and you're going to walk up to Pharaoh and you're going to say, let my people go. That's what God says. And Pharaoh's going to say, absolutely not, no way, not happening. And you know what? You're going to lead this people out of Egypt, out of the most military, uh, militarily strong nation in the world right now. And you're going to stand at the foot of this mountain that you're standing at right now and you're going to worship God. And everyone's going to know that I sent you. And Moses is like, okay. You know, when we're here, we'll know. The people will know that, that you sent me, and this didn't just happen. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 7. It says, In the day of, days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, Rezin, it's probably more fun to say Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. 
They, they, are, they are getting themselves ready. The armies are assembling. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, this is the nation of Syria, and Israel in the north, and the, the kingdom that split off from uh, Solomon's kingdom in the days of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz, when he heard this, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Think hurricane shaking trees. Their hearts are shaking. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Why is Ahaz going to be up there? Because he's the king and he's making sure they're going to have water when this enemy surrounds them and encamps about them. Because they're not going to be able to go out of the city. They've got to have everything that they need right there. So he's checking to make sure that the water supply is good. So say to him, notice, four commands to Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Is there a connection there with the trees, right? Will, will, the, will this fire that's coming against them set the whole forest ablaze? God says, no, they're just they're stumps of torches and they're going out. Don't worry. Don't be afraid at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. That's working. Let us conquer it for ourselves and let us set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Raisin. What he's saying is the kings of those nations are the kings of those nations and they will not be the king of, uh, of Judah, of Jerusalem, because that is not their place. And then he says, and within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, you ready? We've got the setting. So here it comes. Here comes the prophecy. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is a, a descendant of David, right? David has been promised that, that he will have a kingdom and that there will always be a son to sit on his throne. And so God says to him, I am for you. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, don't let your heart be faint. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, verse 11, ask a sign. What kind of sign? A present persuader, right? Ask for something and I will show you. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Is there a... Can you, can you feel his religious contempt there? The way, he's, the way he's talking, he's, he's being hyper-spiritual. The prophet is coming and saying, God will give you any sign you ask for. And he says, doesn't the Bible say not to put the Lord to the test and ask for signs? I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to ask the Lord to show me something. And he pushes God's offer of a sign of reassurance away. And he said... 
Hear then, O house of David. Okay? What we're, what we're doing right here, what's happening right now is going to be bigger than just Ahaz. The threat that's coming from these two nations is, is the destruction of Judah. The, the, the tearing down of David's line. David was promised that, that he would be the one that God was going to work through. That a, a Messiah would come and would sit on David's throne. And his coming would change the world. The threat here is to the faithless house of David. And the promise depends on David's house. He says... Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? God's willing to support Ahaz, to be with him, but he refuses. And therefore, he says in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Is this a present persuader? Or will it be a future confirmation? Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. That's the food that you eat when you're poor. That's not rich food. That's what you eat when the land around you is destroyed and there's no meat and there's no bread. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The faithless house of David will lose its nation. Isaiah 8, 6, this, this whole passage, the whole sweep of what God is now saying runs to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Raisin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. That's the Euphrates River. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. A flood like that is a horrible threat. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. He says, Assyria is coming and they are going to destroy uh, Syria. They will destroy Israel. They will destroy the nation of Judah, almost. The faithless house of David will lose its throne, it will seem. But God will be faithful. And the sign of God's work will be fulfilled when it seems like there's no possibility of restoration at all. Now, let me just point you back, because there's a connection to the genealogy, right, that we, that we studied a few weeks ago. In Matthew chapter uh, 1, verses 11, 12, and 17, we're told uh, we're, we, the, the central event in the genealogy after the birth of David is the exile being taken off the land. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, right? That's getting the Davidic king and getting that second promise. And all the generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Faithless house of David loses its throne. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What does God say in Isaiah chapter 9? He says that the Messiah, the Savior, will appear in Galilee. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. This shows up in Matthew chapter 2. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. What is that light? Matthew says this is fulfilled in the beginning of the preaching message of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6. This is the son who is coming, the one who would be born of a virgin, the one who would be called Emmanuel. Isaiah celebrates in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is God saying the sign will be when the new covenant is in place? When Jesus comes and lives and he goes to the cross and he dies... And they will see that God has been faithful to every single promise that he's ever made. Because it's going to seem for a long time like God has not been faithful. The Bible teaches us that no greater blessing can be conceived of than for God to dwell with his people. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. Isaiah 60, verse 19, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord God will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Jeremiah 32, 38, They shall be my people, I will be their God. Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so we see the fulfillment of it here in this passage. Matthew says, this is the one, this is Emmanuel, this is who is promised to us. It means that God is with us. So someone might say, is Jesus called Emmanuel anywhere else in the New Testament? Does the name Emmanuel show up anywhere? Because it, it, this seems like a pretty significant prophecy. So is he, is he called Emmanuel again? You know, is this really his name? Well, no. But listen to what the New Testament does say. 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Who? God took on flesh. John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Romans 9, 5 speaks of the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact, I think of a fingerprint here, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Charles Wesley, um, I don't know, is it when you write a hymn, do you inhibit? it? You know, I don't know. What's, what's the word for for nailing words down in a hymn, songwriting, something that was supposed to be a little more dramatic. Charles Wesley says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God is with us. It was prophesied long ago that one would come and he would be our God. Not just that we would worship him as the supreme human being, but that he would be the God who created the universe. 
And so we can know that God is with us. He has been where we have been. He has been where we are, and he will have been at all different points in our life where we will be. Consider that when you think about who God is. Our God is a sympathetic high priest. We've been given a child. A son has been given to us, and the government of the universe is on his shoulders. What is his name called? Wicked, tyrant, evil, dictator, malicious ruler of the universe? No, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Hebrews 2.17 says that he had to be made like his brother's. That's us, his brothers and his sisters, those who believe in Christ, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to pay and to satisfy God for the sins of the people. God with us is a promise of our deliverance. Jesus comes, takes on our flesh, dies on the cross, and when he is raised, it is a promise that we will be delivered from our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, each in his own order, Christ, the first fruit. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When you buy a house, what do you do? Write a check for the whole amount before the mortgage goes through? No, you write a little check. That's big enough that it would hurt for you to say, I don't, I don't, I'm going to walk away from this deal. It's earnest money. It's the first fruit. God raises Jesus from the dead and every believer says, yes, I will be raised. And he's going to save us from our sin, bring David's kingdom, and we will live with him in peace and harmony forever. So as we consider the idea that God is with us, let me ask you what kind of heart you have on this issue. Do you have an Ahaz kind of heart? Not going to put God to the test. Don't really need anything from him. Just going to kind of work real hard, be real good, and one day show up and say, look at me. Or do we respond with the heart that Ahaz should have had and say, show me a sign and increase my faith. I believe that you are with me and for me. Think about what it means that God is with us. He's with us in close fellowship. It doesn't say that, that, that God is for us. It doesn't say that God thinks kindly of us. It doesn't say that God might like us. It says that God is with us. You are all with, with me right now, and I'm with you. There's, there's a closeness and a proximity. God is with us. He fellowships with us. He knows our needs and cares for our burdens. Isaiah 53.5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the, the beatings and the whippings that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14.20, You will know that I am in my Father. And you are in me, and I am in you. That's close fellowship. God is with us. And he's also with us in all of our stages and aches of life. Don't think that Jesus lived some kind of charmed life that was magical in some sense, and that his life had no identification points with your own. His path and your path, even though you live in the age of the iPhone and the car and the airplane, your path and his path cross at every stage of life. He was born 
Luke 2, 7, laid in a manger. He experienced growing pains, teething pains, gas pains, skinned knees, everything that you experience as a child. Jesus knows. He was a child with parents and not with perfect parents. These parents had the perfect baby. That's probably difficult, right? How many parents have said this kid thinks he's right about everything, right? And you know he wasn't. This kid was. He was a child with parents. Luke 2, 5, he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. You don't like obeying your parents? Jesus obeyed his parents. He worked. He learned. He suffered. He learned the law. He labored at a task and at a a trade. He had to learn things. You're frustrated that you've got to sit in classes and pass tests or you're like, I don't know why I don't understand how or why this works this way. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He learned. He was alone. If you feel alone... God doesn't know what this feels like. God's always surrounded by angels. No, Jesus knew what it was like to be alone. He came to his disciples in Matthew 26. He found them sleeping and he said, couldn't you sit up with me just for one hour? He's thinking, I'm about to die for the sins of the world and my disciples are catching up on their sleep. I've told them over and over, I'm going to die. And they're like, nah, it's not going to happen. You know, and they're like, everything I do, everything I say happens. They fell asleep. Do you feel pressed in by demands with little time for yourself? Person, mom, in parentheses, right? Mark 3.20, he went home, the crowd gathered again. They could not even eat. He was hungry, tired, tempted. Matthew 4.2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You ever have that feeling like you're, you're just like, I missed lunch, I just got to get some food in me, like feeling a little faint, you know, like I'm going to snap if this kid doesn't, you know, you ever feel that way? Jesus knows what that's like. He knows. He also knows our sorrows. He was grieved over frustration. He drew near to the city of Jerusalem and he saw their stiff, stubborn refusal to believe and to receive him and he wept over it. You might think Jesus doesn't know what it's like to have kids. He had 12 disciples who fought constantly. He rebuked them for being slow to believe. He rebuked people around him. How long do I need to bear with this generation of people? I'm teaching, I'm preaching, nobody's believing. He understood what it was like to lose someone. In John 11:34, he comes to Lazarus's grave. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The Jews, it says in verse 36, said, see how he loved him. It doesn't matter that he's going to raise him from the dead in a minute. Jesus stares at that grave and knows the deep pain of loss. And he sees the the effect of sin and death. Jesus knows poverty. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be slandered. The Pharisees said of his work done in righteousness and in faithfulness to God. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. He knows what it was like to be betrayed. Luke twenty-two forty-seven. while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew nearer to Jesus to kiss him. 
and he's the big bad villain, but Jesus also had devoted disciples who abandoned him. Peter denied him, it says in John 18, 27, and at once a rooster crowed. He knew what it was like to be abandoned. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. He knew what it was like to be in physical pain and danger. My father, if I cannot, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Matthew 26, 67, they spit in his face and struck him, some slapped him. But Jesus took faith in the goodness of God, that God was with him. What does Isaiah 41.10 say? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is with you. Isaiah 43.2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He knew the faithfulness of God in the midst of his pain and danger, and he knows what it is like to be thrown upon the hour of death. He cried out in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Surrounded by detractors, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was thirsty and no one helped him except to mock him. And then he died. And because he died, taking our sins upon himself, we can be at peace and fellowship with God. He is for us. He is with us. The Son is for us, the Bible says. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. You're in me and I in you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. God is with us. The Father is for us. Romans 8.32, this is so good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, if that doesn't like hit you as immediately making sense, think about it this way. This is what, what split into two parts. The, the, the scripture goes like this. God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. If he, if he did that, will he therefore, or therefore he will surely give us all things. The most difficult thing, the thing which is of the greatest value is the son. And God gave the son and said, he will be crushed. And the son says, I will do it. And, and God gave him so that we could be saved. That's the difficult thing. The easier, less difficult thing is to give us all of the things that we need, all of our real needs met. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God himself, because he's for us. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Preachers are on television nowadays saying, that stuff doesn't happen to you if you're a Christian and you have faith. Does anybody read the Bible? It happened to all these faithful people. It happened to Jesus, and if your theology doesn't include a category that says Jesus can suffer because those who are blessed by God don't suffer, your theology is wrong. Do these things destroy us? 
Do they invalidate the gospel promises to us? No, the Bible says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus because God is with you. How does he supply every need? Philippians 4.12, Paul says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice that all things includes being brought low, facing hunger, being in need, embracing the suffering that comes when we feel like what we really need or needed didn't arrive. But think about it. What do we have that enables us to face those circumstances? We have everything that we need because God is with us. We have Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ. Our needs are met according to God's riches in glory, not, 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 not by God sending down Amazon boxes full of blessings, but by him saying, here I am. You have all that you need because I am all that you need. The Spirit is for us. He is in us. 2 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 2 Corinthians 6.16 We are the temple of the living God as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. The Holy Spirit is described in Acts 16, 7 as the Spirit of Jesus. We read in Matthew 1, 23 that the name Emmanuel means God is with us. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How? In the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And he promises at the end, Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with us. And so as we conclude, think about this. We have what we need most. We need God. So what kind of delight comes from this understanding in your own life? What kind of life change results when you understand that? Let me, let me address two crowds. One, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you are not a believer, understand that God is Christ's, or Christ is God's ambassador to you. He sent him in the manger, this, this little baby boy just like you who would struggle and suffer and experience everything you experienced except he never sins. And this child is the one who's sent holding out the olive branch from God to you. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God sends Christ, and he says, this is the gracious deal I will offer to you because you are sinners. You have offended me. We're all sinners. He says, I will put your sins on my son and cancel them out. You may have had an issue with someone at some point in your life. And someone came to you imperfectly to reconcile. And they, and they said the wrong things. They didn't understand and things got worse. Any husband knows this experience, at least in part. You tried to fix it, but you said the thing wrong. You, had, you rehearsed the thing. 
right? And you were like, it'll work. And then you're like, why didn't it work? But that's not the way this messenger works. He fixes it perfectly. And so God has sent the perfect peace ambassador to you. Will you know and see the character of the one that he's sent and understand that he's the exact imprint of the father? And will you say like the prodigal son, I will arise and go to my father. Will you see that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for you to pay for your sins? And will you return to him? Jeremiah 29, 13, God promises, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So my challenge to you is to put your faith and trust in him, to seek him with your whole heart and be found by him. Run to Christ and he will be with you. Second group, if you're a Christian, God is with you. God is with you. Where's God? Don't we say that sometimes? I just, I feel like, I feel like God's abandoned me. He's with you. The Bible promises that he is with you. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You're a child of God. God is with you. Listen to what Spurgeon says on the topic. I love his message on this. It was fantastic. He says this, you, the saints redeemed by blood, have a right to all these things in their fullest sense. Drink it in and be filled with courage. Don't say we can do nothing. Who are you that you can do nothing? God is with you. Do not say the church is feeble and fallen upon evil times. God is with us. Then he says this, I like, speaking of Alexander the Great, he says, I like Alexander's talk when he was told that there were so many millions of Persians surrounding him with whom he would have to do battle. Very well, says he, it is good reaping where the corn is thick. One butcher is not afraid of a thousand sheep. I was about to say, I wish I could be that funny. One butcher is not afraid. That wasn't funny? Oh, man. All right, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have... I have, again, seriously overestimated my ability to be humorous. <laughs> the old warrior, Gascon, was asked, can you and your troops get into that fortress? It's impregnable. He asked, can the sun enter it? And they said, yes. Well, where the sun can go, we can enter. Whatever is possible or whatever is impossible, Christians can do at God's command, for God is with us. Do you not see that the word God is with us puts impossibility out of all existence? Hearts that could never be broken will be broken if God is with us. There is nothing that we cannot do at God's command. There are no impossibilities. Are we worried because we live in a country increasingly hostile to the truth of God's word and the gospel? God is with us. Are we scared because it's increasingly difficult to share the gospel in our culture? God's with us. Are we disappointed because the blessings we initially sought in coming to Christ have not materialized and instead we've been given only the promises of scripture and the presence of God living within us instead of what we have expected? We've been given the greatest gift, God with us. 
These are the dying words of the great evangelist, John Wesley. The dying words of a godly man. He died March 2nd, 1791. Not 1971. March 2nd, 1791, in his 88th year, as he lay dying, his friends gathered around him. Wesley grasped their hands and repeatedly said, farewell, farewell. At the end, summoning all his remaining strength, he cried out, the best of all is, God is with us. Lifted his arms, raised his feeble voice again, and repeated the words, the best of all, God is with us. Is God with you? If not, why not make him yours now? Are you a believer? Do you live like God is with you? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share this word. We can squeeze the scriptures and there is always goodness remaining. We thank you for these truths that, that, that come across in the reading so subtle and so simple and so easy and yet when we, when we pick at them, water just flows. We thank you for that. We thank you for this truth that you are with us, that you're for us, that you know us, that you love us, that you care for us. We pray that we would live in the light of the goodness of that truth. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's not trusted you as their Savior, they've not put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray they would do that now. And Father, I pray for every believer in this room, wherever they are, whatever they're suffering from, whatever they're struggling with, whatever they're grappling or battling or dealing with, I pray that they would know because they have believed in the gospel, they have a right to call themselves a child of God and therefore they should know that you are with them. And may they think that nothing is beyond them and nothing is impossible. We pray this, knowing that you're good and kind, Lord. And so we pray it in the strong name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.